Wouldn't it be great if you could earn the CEUs you need by listening to a podcast? Well, now you can. We have partnered with speechpathology.com to offer CEUs on select autism outreach podcasts like this one. Just head over to speechpathology.com and sign up to enjoy unlimited access for a full year for $99. That's unlimited 24-7 access to hundreds of online courses offered for ASHA CEUs, including live webinars, on-demand videos, audio, and text courses. Plus, select Autism Outreach Podcasts for just $99 a year. Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcast. Just visit speechpathology.com and use promo code AUTISM at checkout. That's speechpathology.com, promo code AUTISM to get started today. I have a great talk today with Katie Castro. She is somebody who has been a supporter of ABA speech since I started my company about three years ago. She is an alumni of our ASHA approved course, Help Me Find My Voice, which is focused on helping students who are nonverbal, who don't have a way to communicate, find their voice. And she is a fellow unicorn. She is duly certified as an SLP and a BCABA. She has been working in the field for 16 years as an SLP and received her certification as a BCABA in 2019. She grew up in Indiana and she actually went to Purdue. That's where my husband went to college. We have so many different things in common. She actually lives in Austin now. And I lived in Austin for three years and really, really loved my time down there as an autism facilitator. Katie actually started her career working with adults and she transitioned to providing in-home therapy to young children and early childhood intervention for eight years. And now since 2016, she has been the clinical director of speech therapy at the Children's Autism Center and ABA and Speech Therapy Clinic in Austin, Texas. She specializes in incorporating behavior-based strategies into speech therapy, which is amazing, to provide motivating and effective intervention to children with autism. And we have such a great conversation today all about generalization. How do we help our students generalize their language skills? So it's great that our students are learning skills in the therapy room, but how do we make sure that they're using them in the community and the larger school environment? And we talk about very specific strategies that you can use if you're not already doing so. We also talk about this really cool program item list, and we have this in the show notes. So this is a way that you can keep really specific data when you're working with your students. It's going to be super, super helpful for your intervention planning and is going to make progress reporting easier. If you want to make your progress reporting easier, make sure that you stay tuned and you listen to this entire episode. Let's get started. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks for joining us on episode 13 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. My name is Rose Griffin. I am here to help you learn strategies you can use in your therapy sessions tomorrow to help your students. And today we have Katie Castro with us. Thanks for joining us, Katie. It's so nice to have you on. 
Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Katie has been a supporter. I appreciate it, Katie, of ABA Speech. Um, I've had my business three years now, and Katie is an alumni of our ASHA Approved Autism course, Help Me Find My Voice. And you're just so kind. Like, thank you for supporting, liking my comments, commenting on things that I post, because sometimes in the social media world, you know, sometimes you get in a groove and people love everything you post. And then other times you're like, hello, does anybody, am I helping anyone with these posts or anything that I'm doing? But Katie has always really been a great supporter. So I really appreciate that, Katie. That means a lot to me. Katie is actually, she's a fellow unicorn. So she is a speech language pathologist and board certified assistant behavior analyst. I'm so excited. We actually, it's such a small world. She lives in Austin now, which I actually lived in Austin for three years. I think I've talked about that on the podcast and I had such an amazing experience. So we have some uh, shared acquaintances and friends. And she also went to Purdue, which is super fun (laughs) because my husband went there. So a lot of ways that were kind of linked, but I don't know the answer to this question. So I'm super excited to hear it. I always ask people when they first come on, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into being a professional and your journey into the autism world? Sure. Well, I started my career first initially working with adults, actually, right out of graduate school. But my passion had always been to work with children. So I started working in early childhood intervention first for many years. And then I had my own kids. And my youngest child was kind of showing some differences in his development. And it kind of led me to this world of wanting to know more about autism. It was not something that he ended up having, but it started down, it started me down that path of wanting to learn more and how, how I could get more training and, and be more helpful to kiddos with autism. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, no, I didn't know that. I was like, Katie, before we were talking, I was like, don't tell me the answer. I want to be surprised. I don't know everybody's (laughs) answer to all these. Some people I'm like, okay, I totally know all the background and everything. And it's great to share with the listeners, but I didn't know that. So how long did you work with adults before you transitioned into working with younger students? I worked with adults for three years at a skilled nursing facility. It was actually my placement as a graduate student. I started there as, you know, getting supervised as a graduate student and I loved my my supervisor so much and she offered me a job after I finished graduate school. And so I stayed. I had never intended to work with adults. I had always wanted to work with kids, but I just, I loved it so much. I love my supervisor so much that I kind of just got sucked into that world, which I really enjoyed because I got to see kind of a more medical end of speech pathology. And then through friends of from graduate school, I found a job in early childhood intervention and I got back to kind of my original passion, which was working with kids. Well, that's so interesting because when I became a speech therapist, I really loved just everything about how broad our field is. I think that's something yes. that people don't understand that, you know, speech therapists do a lot. Our scope of practice is pretty crazy. Yeah. We take courses in graduate school about swallowing problems and people who right. have had strokes and people who have selective mutism and fluency and autism is a part of that. But boy, in voice. I mean, that's not even, we're just scratching the surface here. And it seems that, you know, some people are more generalists and they do a little bit of everything. And what's interesting about your story is that I always thought when I first started, I was a school-based clinician. And then I always did PRN work because I like to work, I guess. I always have like 20 jobs. I just saw my accountant last week and he was like, oh my gosh. Okay. But (laughs) I've always had, you know, PR 
end placements kind of as needed in nursing homes. And then when I started mm-hmm. working with students with autism, then I just, you know, fell in love with helping students with autism. And that's always kind of been where my passion has lied. But that's so interesting that that's kind of where you started too. It is a good experience because it kind of gives you the scope of really what we do. So, um, yeah. so then how long have you been a speech therapist and how long have you been duly certified then? Let's see. I graduated. <laughs> Let me do the math. Really. <laughs> yeah. 16 years. Is that oh. right? That seems like such a long time because I graduated in 2005 from graduate school. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, that's pretty similar to me. I graduated in 2003. So I feel like I keep saying like I'm seasoned. I've almost been a speech therapist for 20 years. So, oh my goodness. Can you believe it? I know. <laughs> At the time, likely. But I, I think it was the last um, two years that I've been, uh, that I had my certification as a BCABA. Oh, okay. Oh, wonderful. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And I know I mentioned that Katie has taken Help Me Find My Voice, our five-hour ASHA-approved course. So can you tell us a little bit about like maybe how you found ABA speech or how you were interested in that course? I'm kind of curious because I don't really know the answer to that. And can you kind of share that with our audience? Because I I know some people are going to be hearing about the course and thinking like, is it something I should take or kind of what caught your eye about that course? I believe that I saw it on Facebook first. I don't recall if it was on one of my, because I'm on a lot of SLP Facebook pages. So I don't know if it came up on there that I found you, but I also know that I was really interested in your materials and you were at that time, you know, advertising both, both the training and the materials as like a- right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we first started, yes, we did do that. Okay, cool. And so that's how I, it caught my eye. And I was at that time going through the classwork um, the coursework for the BCABA and just trying to figure out my role as an SLP while using behavior-based strategies, like right. trying to figure out how to incorporate those. And so I was like, this is perfect when I found this course. And it really helped. I really appreciated how you go through kind of the vocabulary of mm-hmm. ABA. So right. that way, when you're collaborating with BCBAs, with behavior analysts, you can be kind of speaking the same language because a lot of times we're talking about the same thing, but we just use different terminology. Absolutely. Um, yes. And it can be really, I, I know that I feel defensive when I'm in a meeting and somebody says a word and I'm not sure what that word means. And then I have to pretend that I know what it means. And then I Google <laughs> a word afterward. And this has definitely happened to me. I mean, recently where somebody has said something and I'm like, Oh, I don't know. I mean, And then after I look it up, I'm like, oh, well, I talk about that concept, but I don't call it that. Or yeah. So I think that we can feel kind of defensive and just feel kind of confused, even though, you know, I teach an ethics class for people who are becoming board certified behavior analysts. And there is an ethical code that says that we shouldn't use jargon, especially in meetings and things like that. So we shouldn't use the word manding or tacting or some of these different terms that people kind of throw around because not everybody at the table knows what those mean. And when you don't, know what something means, you can leave feeling confused. And we never want another professional to feel that way, or we definitely don't want any parents to feel that way. So you kind of have to know the room, read the room. So that makes me feel good that that kind of was a good start in that way. And the things that we're going to talk about today, I'm really kind of excited because I feel like it's really important information that 
kind of goes a step beyond your clinical practice, kind of things that we should kind of analyze, some things to think about, uh, questioning, you know, are you doing these things now? If not, are these things that you can implement? So it kind of goes beyond that kind of data collection piece. And I'm excited to talk about it. So one of the main areas that we're going to talk about today is generalization. So for people that are kind of tuning in and they're like, generalization, what, what exactly does that mean? What do you mean, Katie, when we say generalization? Can you give everybody a little bit of a definition of generalization. Sure. Generalization is the ability of a student to perform a skill under different conditions and also to apply that skill in maybe a different way than you're specifically taught. So, you know, an easy example of maybe generalization is when a child is looking at a dog. Let's say first they see a picture of a brown dog that they're learning that that is a dog, but then they see, you know, a large white dog that that also is a dog. So kind of learning, typically we teach maybe dog as, you know, sometimes we don't realize that when we're teaching one concept of dog, that there's actually so many different examples of dog. But being able to generalize that that word dog applies to all of those different examples of dog. Yes, I think that's such a great point. And that's exact. I mean, this is exactly what inspired me <laughs> to start my entire business was this set of action builder cards. So if you're listening yeah. and you don't know, I have yeah. this set of action, they're called the action builder cards. It's a hundred set of flashcards. And I was helping students plan for the generalization of language skills. So oftentimes what happens when you buy materials, flashcards, there's one picture of dog, there's a one picture of eating, there's a one picture of playing. And so then when we use those in therapy, we're not planning for that generalization piece. So I was spending so much time on Google images, making my own flashcards. And we're going to talk about some of these ways we can plan for generalization. And one of them is using multiple exemplars or just multiple examples, right? A lot of different pictures of things because that allows our kids to plan for that generalization piece. Oh, I saw this picture with Miss Rose. Okay. Now I'm working with Miss Katie. I know that's a dog. They're different materials. Materials, but we're still working on those things cohesively. And this is actually the whole reason <laughs> that I started my business is because of these flashcards that I created. I remember I've done staff trainings, which may seem silly, but for parapros about how to make materials for students with autism, because I think what happens is we want to make sure that we're embedding things that our students love and enjoy. And I know we were going to touch on pairing a little bit, but you know, we really need to make our learning fun and functional. I say that a lot on the podcast, but I really mean it. And so that means that if we're working on labeling with a student who is new to working on labeling, you know, we're not going to work on labeling bathroom. We're not going to work on labeling pencil when writing is hard. We're going to work on labeling Daniel the tiger, or we're going to work on labeling, um, you know, jumping on the trampoline because those are things that the student really loves. And oftentimes we have to make those materials sometimes. <laughs> and so that's kind of what gets tricky, but that's really actually why I started my entire business of ABA speech is the idea of generalization because it's just hard. And we as therapists, it's hard to be a clinical therapist. You know, there's a lot of different pros and cons there. And a school-based therapist, you just don't have a whole lot of time. You need to have your materials ready. You need to have them organized as best as possible. And you need to have them ready to go. And if if you have flashcards and there's only one picture of eating, or if that's the only way yeah. you're presenting it, then you're really going to have that barrier for that generalization among different materials and things like that. That too. And those materials were exactly what kind of led me to you, actually. Those oh. were the materials. 
So I was talking about the action builder cards. And also, I guess just thinking about it, like we talked a little bit about dog and all the, the variations of dog, but I mean, even some of the actions that we do that, you know, like washing, washing can look like washing hands, washing can look like washing food, washing can look like washing, a, a, you know, a child or a, a pet, yeah. that you really have to think that, that that word can have, or, you know, that a word can have, you know, different, different meanings in different contexts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that's really important to, to think about. And I think this is important for students of all ages. I remember I had a student who was in high school, he had pretty severe autism and we were working on labeling functional items and he was working at a really cool place for pets. And so he was cleaning, he was doing things with the pets, he was feeding them. And so one of the things that we worked on was him labeling dog collar. So we, we did a couple of Google images, but then we also, this was just a phenomenal place that I worked. We also had iPads. So the staff were able to take pictures of the actual dog collars that he was seeing at his work. And so when I would see the student for speech therapy, we would work on labeling these items. And then the staff, we had a shared daily data sheet. So they knew exactly what I was working on for speech therapy targets. This was kind of like the absolute gold standard. So when the student <laughs> was in speech therapy, we were working on labeling these things. When the student was out in the community, um, doing his job, the staff knew to embed work on those types of communication-based labeling activities. And so it was this really nice, cohesive, very functional um, type of thing. Because I don't know if you've ever worked with students who you've seen kind of that generalization break down. It's kind of like, well, he does it with me or right. you know, he does it when I have this book. Have you seen that in your clinical practice where a student has trouble generalizing? Absolutely. Where, oh, maybe exactly your example of the book is perfect. Well, this book, Book, yes, he'll label as a book, but not maybe that book or another book. So just kind of keeping that in mind that when you choose a target to make sure you have multiple exemplars of that target to kind of build that concept of what book means or whatever it is that the target that you're working on. And one thing that you mentioned is actually one thing that I, you know, would highly suggest is just finding common stimuli in the in the child's environment, whatever environment, if it's home or school or, you know, for older adults, maybe, you know, in a vocational setting, figuring out what those objects are. Like if it was a naming goal, figuring out what are those objects that they're going to see in their everyday environment and making sure that you can target those examples. So like you said, taking pictures of those items from home or having parents send pictures of those items from home or right. pictures of what those things look like in the school. So that way, you know, it's something that they're going to be seeing on a daily basis and it'll come up more, more, they'll have more op opportunities to target it in their, in, in the environment they're in. Yeah, I love that because I was just a guest on a podcast last night and I was talking all about that. Just how do we make sure that we're embedding these opportunities for communication practice? Like, I, I don't know if you've ever got an IEP that has like seven speech goals and then underneath it is like three different objectives. And you're like, how am I going to target all these things? Like, let's pare it down and let's just make sure that the student is learning something really functional and mm -hmm. that they're generalizing it to different people different environments, different materials. And that's really what makes 
our jobs as speech therapists really powerful. When somebody shares a story with me and says, oh, so-and-so did this and I was nowhere to be found. I, I wasn't during a speech session. I'm like, yes, okay, I can go home now. I've done my work. The student is generalizing their skills. This is really super, super important. So you'd say like maybe one of the first things that we need to think about when we're planning for generalization, I always kind of like that saying too, you know, we don't want to pray that generalization is going to happen, right? Exactly. We don't want to work on something in speech therapy and just hope that the student starts doing it with the teacher or other staff, or we hope that they're going to do it when they're out in the community or with their parents. We need to really systematically plan for that and analyze. And you know, I don't want people to feel overwhelmed thinking about this. So if you're not doing any of this right now, just think about one thing that you can try to do going forward in your practice just to help your students. Because we know that students with autism really do struggle typically with generalizing skills. And that's what's really so important is that our students are going to become independent communicators and that they're going to generalize these things right out of, out of the therapeutic setting. So one of the things we can think about and we've been talking about is teaching multiple examples or using multiple exemplars. We might say that in the behavioral world. The other idea, which I really love and also uh, use is teaching loosely. Can, so can you talk to us? What, what does that mean? Can you kind of give us some examples to find that for us? Because that's an important concept too. Yes. Teaching loosely has to do with kind of varying some of the non-critical features of, of what you're targeting. So it could be like varying the environment in which that, in which you are working on that skill. So, you know, working at it in, at the table, then working at it, you know, in play and the natural environment, maybe going for a walk into another room and working on it there. Also, just maybe slightly varying up the way that you ask the question. So if we're working on naming an item, you could say, you know, what is it? Or what's that? Or this is a so that you're slowly building in some variations in the way that you're asking it. Because if you only ask, what is it? And they say, you know, ball. But let's say the next person comes up and asks them, hey, you know, what's that? Or tell me what's, you know, what do you have? Then they might not be able to answer it in the same way. They may not be able to generalize across kind of a different question. Yeah, I love that because I think sometimes people, especially if you're working in more of a clinical-based setting, I feel like you're more prone to getting into that kind of therapy voice of like, what is it? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's like so unnatural. I know right, right. I, when I heard Dr. Carbone talk, who is a BCBA guru, I think he's out of New Jersey and he had clinics kind of all over Dubai, London. You know, I heard him talk for two days when I was down in Austin and he talked about teaching loosely. And, and really, it makes so much sense because my goal as a therapist is that my student is going to increase their communication skills and they're going to be a more independent communicator. I always say, and I put this on a lot of IEPs, in the larger school environment. So that means in the cafeteria, when they're in the hall, you know, I work, tend to work with older students in a school setting for my school gig. And so that's really what we want for our students. And so we need to really think about when we're giving our students directions about different things, how can we just vary those different directions? Because I know I've met students and I'm sure you have too, that if you don't say something in the very same exact way, they don't listen to the direction. It's hard for them to differentiate. 
what you're right. saying. And so that's really a something to think about when you have something and you're doing therapy, think to yourself, how are you giving those directions? I definitely, I guess I'm really analytical, but I'm always kind of analyzing my sessions. And I really want my sessions to feel like a casual kind of conversation um, because I do work with older students. So we do a lot of stuff in the larger school environment. And it's really just embedded across the students day. I don't do a whole lot in my therapy room. And I think that's what's so important is just making it seem really naturalistic because we know that those types of things, the students are going to pick up on and they're going to generalize. So if you're thinking to yourself, every time I work on this skill, I say it this way, um, right. you might want to think about maybe just changing it up because there's research that says that if we teach loosely, if we use those varied directions that, you know, that's more natural and our students are going to, to generalize that skill more easily. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we talked about teaching loosely, teaching multiple exemplars. Oh, I love this next one. Incorporate parent training. I talk about parents a lot on the podcast. I talk about them being such an integral part of the podcast. Um, since starting my podcast, I've been on two parent podcasts, which I really, really love to women who both have autistic children. And I think it's really great to be in touch with parents. And sometimes it's hard if you're working in a school, sometimes it's a little bit harder to have ongoing communication um, with parents. If you're clinically based, sometimes Sometimes it's just a little bit easier because it's just set up that way, the environment. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, like where you're working now. Do you guys have, I know I do a little bit of mentorship for some SLP BCBAs who are new to being duly certified. And I know some of the people have parent training is just part of the clinical program. And actually when I worked down in Texas, that was actually something that we did in the schools, that parent training was something that parents could opt in for. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes it would look like just a parent training and other times we would actually go out to their home and do home-based services too. So talk to us a little bit about what parent training means in reference to generalization. Um, yes, and I and I um, at a clinic now, a private clinic now that provides both speech and ABA and definitely parent training is written in to most of the ABA programs into all of the ABA programs. So the nice thing is because we're at the clinic and we share similar clients, I can often jump in on those parent training meetings and I can collaborate with the analyst and the parent on what we're all working on and, you know, targets that they could be working on at home. Also in a clinic environment is nice when parents are dropping off or picking up kids because it's just a nice chance to get to have a little chat about what we worked on that day and what they can work on at home. Some of our kiddos that we see are coming to us in the middle of their day from ABA. So then we might not get to have that one-on-one -on -one with a parent, but we all often check in with parents and try to periodically schedule those meetings with parents to try to just update them on what we're working on. And then also, you know, possibly sending home notes about specific things that we're targeting. But it kind of goes back to what are those common stimuli? So it could be, you know, what are the interests of the child that they're, what are things they enjoy to engage in at home also? Because we want to make sure the kiddos I'm working with are, are often early learners. So they're maybe just beginning to name objects or just beginning to receptively identify objects. And we want to pick items that they're going to be commonly seeing at home. So that way, parents can also be working on, on those targets as well. Whether it's naming them or asking them to locate those items or, you know, just talking about them. And that is helpful because then they're also hearing those kinds of questions from another person who's not me. Right. <laughs> so it's not just like in speech with yeah. Miss Katie, you know, I can do right. this. But that parents can also 
be able to work on similar targets. Oh, that's great. I love that parent training component. I do like that. I have, you know, with ABA speech, you know, I do see clients privately and we're actually going to be launching after this airs teletherapy services in about 10 different states, some with speech therapists who are also BCBAs and just speech therapists who are very highly trained. But I'm excited about that piece of it because that is the one nice thing about outpatient services or more clinically based is that sometimes you just have easier access to talking with parents it's just easier. And you can really see the power of generalization, the power of carryover when you have those different touch points with parents. And I can imagine if you're working with students who are younger, that it's probably just really nice for parents to have somebody to talk with so they feel supported because I'm sure that they have a lot of different questions. You know, when somebody has a child who, any child who's developing, you know, like you said, you had some questions about one of your children. You're just kind of always curious, you know, like, how can I help my child? You know, like, what can I do at home? What can we do? to support them. And I think that's really great that that's such an important piece of it. Okay. So generalization, I love that. Let's talk now about maintenance, maintenance of skills. So maintenance is, I know just from my standpoint, we have definitely had students, I feel like it was more clinically based where we were taking data on skills that were already mastered. I hate to use the word mastered. They had met criterion. You know, we had said that they, the students know these skills, but sometimes for some students and especially some programs that we might have to work on these on in maintenance. So can you talk to us a little bit about what maintenance means, maybe how you're using maintenance data in your clinical practice, if that's like a new concept for people listening? Just to ensure that that um, child is maintaining those skills that they worked on, we keep track of, you know, what, well, obviously, what are the child's goals? What are targets within those goals that we've been addressing? And then, you know, I'll keep track of also, you know, what of those targets were, you know, met that mastery criteria and to kind of keep it, keep it fresh for that child so that we will, well, one thing I would say that's really important for generalization is also making sure that they're not overgeneralizing those skills. And one way that you can do that is when you're teaching a target, that, you know, you want to show the child, well, let's say, again, we'll go back to the dog example that we're working on dog, that this is a dog, and maybe we're working on naming animals. So you want to teach other animals at the same time, that way that child can see, oh, this is an example of what a dog is. This is an example. This is an example of what a dog is not. Because the other piece of of generalization is you want to prevent that overgeneralization. And one way that we do that is we incorporate previously mastered skills. So let's say the child's working on naming foods that they like, and they've already maybe been able to demonstrate that they um, are able to name five foods that they really enjoy. Well, I'm going to continue to periodically throughout the session while I'm targeting a new food, I'm going to continue to periodically bring up other foods that they had already mastered so that they're developing a concept of what this new food is. And they also can maintain those other skills so that they are not overgeneralizing what that concept of that new food is. Yeah, that's a great, yeah, that's a great idea. And you know, the idea of maintenance data, I definitely, I don't 
use it as much anymore where I'm taking data on maintenance. Like, so for some, uh, when I was working in non-public programs, we would have an item, let's say it, we're working on labeling, the student masters it, we're taking data on it, and then it goes into maintenance data. So then maintenance data has its own set of rules. Oh. We're running it every week and then we're taking data. And then if the student gets it five times in a row, then we just consider that mastered. And then maybe we run that target once a month. So depending on what your work setting is, you know, maybe if you're working somewhere that is not taking data in that systematic of a structured way, you know, we kind of use maintenance targets just kind of embedded in our sessions where we might use something, say we're working on labeling and we use a target we know the student knows, and then we go to a new target and just to kind of get the student engaged and working. And, and so I think that's good information to think about too, because sometimes our students don't remember those things if we don't kind of keep up with them. And so that's something to think about for students as well. And I know the last thing that we were going to talk about is a program item list to organize your data. So can you talk to a, us about what that is? I'm going to make sure that in the show notes, that is something that you guys will have access to if that's something that you want. But can you talk to us a little bit about how you use a program item list in your data collection? One way that I use to kind of keep track of all of my data and to also have just an easy way to look at what are maybe previously mastered targets that the child has, what are some skills that we can kind of sprinkle in throughout our sessions while we're working on new skills as well. One of the ways that we use is called a program item list. And in the program item list, what I have started, I have it started with what our goal is. So if it was, let's say, the child will identify 10 common items in a field of four when asked, you know, where is the or, you know, find the. And then what I do is I'll have a list of, you know, from one to 10, maybe pick those common items that the child sees on an everyday basis, the things that have the most meaning to the child. I'll have those listed out. And then I don't know if you do it this way, but I tend to take probe data. So yeah, I love probe data. So probe data, if we're talking about the same thing, sometimes yeah. we call it discontinuous data. Sometimes it's just first trial data. So the first time that you run something, or maybe you're, we're talking about labeling a lot in this episode, but let's say that we're, we're labeling dog because we've been talking about that. And we have a flashcard and you show it to the student and they label it correctly. Then you would circle a plus. You would probably uh, uh, most likely work on that potentially in the session more, but you're just taking data. You're just capturing that first time that you were work on the skill. So sometimes that's called cold probe. Sometimes that's called first trial. And sometimes if you're really behaviorally oriented, you might call it discontinuous data collection. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, and the way that we do it is if it's the first time we've addressed that goal, we'll go ahead and just probe all of the potential targets that we have and then see, you know, is this a skill that the child already has? Then, you know, we'll give him a plus if he answered it correctly. Or was it something that they erred on? Then we'll, you know, I'll just write a little minus. And then I know right then, you know, are there any of these targets the child already understands or already knows? And then it helps for me to know because then I can also show progress because if the child, let's say, 
out of the 10, they only knew two. Um, well, that's great. They already know two. That's awesome. <laughs> you have somewhere to start. But let's say they didn't know the other eight. I, I will, you know, mark it down of when I probed that goal. And then also I have another column that says, you know, when was this target introduced? So I'll put the date of whenever I bring it into acquisition or whenever I begin working on that target. And then I also have a column that says date master. So I just have a really clear picture of what were the skills that the child came in already knowing and what are we going to start with working on? And then also, when did they show me that they really already, that they're beginning to understand and, and know that concept? Um, yes, I love that. And I'm, I'm excited for us to have that available. I think I shared that once, something similar on the blog, a lot, like maybe two years ago at the start of school, but I really do like it too, because it's very specific. So if I'm working on labeling or if I'm working on filling the blank, I have the very exact targets that I'm working on, which I know when I write a progress report, it allows me to very, give very specific progress. So parents can work on generalization at home. If you have students who have other providers like a private speech therapist or a private ABA company or whatever it is, or just a tutor that's coming to their house, they would know exactly what things they could support. And then why I also love it too, if you write on that sheet when you baselined it or the first time mm -hmm. that you presented that potential skill and and then you show when it was mastered or when the student met mastery at whatever you set the goal at, then you can see, well, how many sessions does it take my student to learn a new skill? And then that really helps me as a clinician when I'm creating IP goals, because sometimes for some students, if I'm working on a specific skill, I may say the student is going to learn, you know, labels with 90% accuracy over two consecutive sessions. And I may put in parentheses a number like a total of 12 or mm -hmm. a total of 20, whatever it is for the student. And that makes me feel more comfortable when I have that learning history, if it's a student I've had for a while. So that program item list is going to give you really good information. If it's something that you're not already using, it's something that's good just to get a pair of eyes on so you can kind of see like, hmm, maybe I can use this or maybe how could I use this in my own practice? But it does give us a really specific way to analyze what we're working on with students. So thank you so much for sharing that. I'm excited for everybody to have that. What a great talk today. Um, I'm going to end with our final question here. I always end the same way and I always love to hear what everybody has to say. So what is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to parents or professionals about supporting learners with autism? Well, you said it kind of earlier in our talk, that kind of key phrase of like, don't pray for generalization or don't hope for generalization. Make sure you're addressing it in your intervention in a systematic way because you don't want to just like teach teach the child one one skill and and hope that it will generalize to other settings or other people or other possibly examples of that item. You want to build it in systematically to your intervention. Absolutely. I love that. So great. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thanks so much, Katie, for joining us. Make sure to check the show notes for the resources we discussed today. I hope that you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. I always love hearing from you. Remember to keep things fun and functional, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.